Let's turn to 1 John chapter 5. This is the last chapter of 1 John. When we finish it someday, we will move on to 2 John. But right now, we're only in verses 6 uh, through 9a. That would be the first half of verse 9. So we'll cover 6, 7, 8, and half of verse 9 today. Two major themes, as you've probably noticed, truth and love. And probably a lot of people don't necessarily see the correlation between the two, but the Bible teaches us that in order to truly know love, and of course the ultimate is God's love, agape in the Greek, unconditional love, you can't know true love without knowing the truth. Do we all know that there's such a thing as fake love? Just like there's fake news, there's fake love, and what many people call love is really lust. And so a lot of times it would be more appropriate for someone to say, instead of saying, you know, I'm in love with you, if they were really honest, they'd say, I'm in lust with you. And, you know, we talk about loving ice cream and loving pickup trucks, and the word love gets used and abused a lot, doesn't it? But if we're going to know true love, we must know the truth because God is truth. Jesus, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we're going to focus on that truth here today. And the three that bear witness. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And this, and it is the Spirit, big S, Holy Spirit, who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, big W, that's Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on the earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which He has testified of His Son. Let's pray. Father God, at first reading, this passage sounds a little bit mystical, esoteric, but we know that with, the, with your Holy Spirit, we will be able to dig in and grasp what John is telling us here, and it will be of great benefit to us. So we ask you to bless this time of study now, in Jesus' name, amen. This is he who came by water and blood. He's, he's talking about Jesus Christ, that's what he tells us right here. Now, historically, there have been four major interpretations of this phrase, this passage. Least four, there's, there's probably more, but four main ones. One, this is referring to Jesus' baptism and death. His baptism inaugurated, initiated his ministry, his public baptism by John the Baptist, his death, in essence, uh, was the end game to die for our sins. Of course, he rose from the dead. So that's one interpretation. Two, it's referring to his incarnation, his birth, because we know that water plays a big part in birth, the amniotic sac, the breaking of the water, and so forth. In a moment, we'll look at a verse in John 3 that seems to kind of correlate to this. So one, his baptism and death. Two, his birth, his incarnation. Three, 
the water and blood that flowed from his side when the soldier thrust the spear into his side immediately after his death on the cross. Four, the baptism of the believer, the water, and the blood, the Lord's Supper. Let me read to you from John 3, 4 through 6. This is part of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, to Jesus, How can a man be born when he's old? Because Jesus had just told him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus is thinking in the natural rather than the supernatural. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, Nick, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we see here, again, there's various interpretations on this passage too, but my understanding has always been, and I think it's pretty obvious personally, that Jesus is talking about, first of all, the physical birth, unless one is born of water. You've got to be born into the world. You can't be born again unless you've been born the first time, physically, biologically, because Nicodemus is saying, how can I enter again into my mother's womb? But again, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, water, physical birth. So in light of this verse, it's possible that what John is referring to here is number two, the incarnation, born of the water, he who, is, who came by water and by blood. Of course, the blood would have to do with his sacrifice on the cross. But often in the scriptures, and it's quite possible that the same is true here, in fact, I'm rather suspicious of this, that there are multiple layers to the meaning of this passage and perhaps even all of the above. The significance, the water, the blood, whether it's physical birth, the incarnation, baptism, which Jesus was baptized not because he needed to be, but as an example to us. We read on not only by water, but by water and blood. So John puts the emphasis here on the blood. But John the Baptist, as the forerunner of Jesus, came baptizing for repentance. Remember? He went out to the Jordan River, and he, people followed him out there. He was preaching a message of repentance, turn from your sins, repent, turn to God, and he was baptizing them. But John, as we know, did not shed his blood for the sins of the world. Jesus was baptized as a sign or symbol of his purity, not that he was dirty and needed cleansing. And he told John, John said, no, 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 Jesus, I can't do that. If anything, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, let us do it to fulfill all righteousness. So he set that example for us. Jesus' sinless perfection allowed him to become the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. Hence, the blood. He who came by water either by birth or by baptism. And again, baptism, part of the symbolism of baptism is the new birth. Paul writes in Romans 
that when you go under the water, you're identifying with Christ in his death. When you come up out of the water, you're identifying with Christ in his resurrection. New life, new birth. That's why we believe that it's very important that baptism be by full immersion because that otherwise the whole example is broken. When you die, they don't squirt you. They bury you. And so you go under the water, you're buried in Christ. You come up out of the water, you're a new creature in Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 in the New American Standard Bible says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He died for sins once for all. And then John tells us it is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, who bears witness. And you've heard me speak before about John Wesley and how he preached for some 20 years and then finally came to the conclusion that he wasn't even born again. Because he did not have an inner witness. That's the term that he developed. The inner witness that when you know that you know that you know that the Spirit of God is living inside of you, that you are born again. Does that mean you will never ever have little moments of doubt or question here and there? No. The enemy is going to try to do that to us for the rest of our earthly days. But when we find that those fleeting thoughts may come into our heart and mind, the Holy Spirit quickly dispels them. It is the Spirit who bears witness. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. We hear a lot of things about the Holy Spirit, don't we? And some of them are accurate and some are not. And oftentimes the Holy Spirit is portrayed as kind of a wacky, crazy, a wild and crazy guy. But that's not true. It is the work of the Holy Spirit speaking to the hearts of men to confirm to them that Jesus is indeed the one and only divine, sinless Son of God. It is the Spirit who bears witness. Why? Because the Spirit is truth. Notice, just like Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am. By the way, before Abraham was, I am. Anybody who says Jesus didn't claim to be God doesn't know their Bible very well. He identified himself as the great I am. Back in Exodus, Moses is talking to God in the burning bush. That could be a little confusing, couldn't it? And, uh, you know, God's telling Moses, I want you to go back and deliver your people. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And so Moses is arguing he doesn't want to do it and so forth. None of us have ever done that. So finally Moses says, well, God, or whoever you are, when they ask me, who sent me, what should I tell them? Tell them I am. I love that. Not I was or I will be. That speaks of God's eternal nature. I am. And Jesus identified himself in the Gospels as I am. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here John tells us the Spirit is is truth. The Spirit does not simply reveal the truth to us. He is the truth. Therefore, He's the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, just like the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is God also. So He's not an it. 
Some people treat the Holy Spirit like an it, like a substance. And in fact, some people, with regard to the Holy Spirit, are guilty of substance abuse. I can think of some names. I'll be nice today. Are you shocked? Sometimes I can be nice. Actually, I'm nice a lot of the time. I'm a nice guy. <laughs> the Spirit is truth. He can bear witness to the truth about who Jesus Christ is, the one who came by water and blood because he is the truth. John 14, 16, Jesus says, he's yeah, got to go away, guys, but I'm going to send you another helper, another comforter. I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of what? Truth. See, so really, folks, as believers, there's no excuse for us to become deceived. The people in the world who don't know God, they don't have the Spirit, yeah, they're deceived. And I told you quite a while back, Chuck Missler had labeled our era some 10, 15, 20 years ago as the age of deception. And we've talked about this, Matthew 24, Jesus mentions it multiple times that the key characteristic of the last days would be worldwide massive deception. But what is the end result of worldwide mass deception? It gives way literally to insanity. And I've told you we've moved beyond the age of deception. We're now in the age of insanity and it's confirmed more and more every day. And I've talked about this. I'm not going to belabor the point. But you can think of the many ways that that insanity is manifesting itself. Now promoting liberal left-wing politicians and other people promoting abortion even up to the moment of birth. Is that insanity or not? Without a doubt. Telling someone who is biologically a man if you're actually a woman, if you want to be, you can be. Or the other way around, a woman, you can be a man. And when people start to mess around with God's creation, I'm telling you, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. We are living in the age of insanity. And let me tell you something. Don't doubt this for a moment. The devil's goal is, to, is not only to drive the whole world nuts, he wants to drag you into it too if he can. And it's happening. People are being dragged into it. There are believers who are compromising more and more every day. It's that old expression, if you can't beat them, join them. We're at a place now where roughly 50% of the church is now okay with gay marriage and other, those types of practices. If you were to be placed in a uh, mental health care facility, they used to call them insane asylums. Why? Because people that they put in there were insane. Just like we used to call people with um, chemical issues, addictions. If it was alcohol, they used to call you a drunkard. If you were addicted to drugs, they would call you a junkie. And, oh, but that's mean and nasty and we don't want to hurt people's feelings. Well, when those people die of an overdose, their feelings are really going to be hurt. 
And when they wind up in hell, their feelings are really going to be hurt. And the reason we assigned negative phraseology, which, by the way, more and more every day, you can't really say anything. It's getting to where you can't use any kind of terminology because it's offensive to someone, including telling people that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on the cross for your sins, that He rose again. Hey, you're proselytizing. You're trying to force your religion on me. No, I'm trying to share the good news, that God loves you, that Jesus died for you. If you were to be placed in a, let's use the old-fashioned term, insane asylum. Sorry. If you were to be placed there, but you weren't insane, but you were surrounded day and night, 24-7, with people who were, what do you think might happen? You think you're going to suddenly help all them become sane? Or are they going to drive you nuts? It's exactly what's happening today, you see. The enemy's goal is to so completely surround us with people who literally are insane that we also become insane. If we don't want that to happen, we've got to stay with God. We've got to stay with Jesus. We've got to stay in the Word, and we cannot compromise. And it might come down to them telling you, you are insane for believing in God. You are insane for identifying as a Christian. And if you don't renounce it, well, then we're going to have to put you in an insane asylum. Because to believe in God is nuts. What are you going to do then? Are you going to give up? Are you going to give in? Are you willing to lay down your life for Christ? Because that's what it takes to be a true disciple of Christ. Do you realize that? No compromise. Verse 17, we're in John 14. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Folks, there is no excuse for becoming deceived. If it happens, you allowed it. You didn't hold firm to the truth of God's word. You compromised. You allowed other people to seduce you and draw you in to false doctrines, false teachings, false beliefs, philosophies of men, like many in the church today are doing. But there's no excuse for it because the spirit of truth lives in you. But you know what? It's so much easier to believe the lie than it is to believe the truth. It's so much easier to go on your feelings and emotions rather than the truth. The only problem is you might be getting your warm, fuzzy feelings from some flaky, shaky, compromising pastor or teacher, but you know what? Those feelings don't last. You might go to some kind of a rally and get a big buzz and Benny Hen might knock you over, but that doesn't last. That's no different than the alcohol buzz, the drug buzz, or any other kind of buzz that you get. And you wake up in the morning and you feel like garbage. That will not sustain you. John 15, 26, when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, it's a promise, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify. There's three that bear witness, right? He will testify 
or bear witness of me. That's why I've told you so many times how I pray for my loved ones. Father, give them the gift of faith, the gift of repentance, and send your Holy Spirit to draw them to yourself because the Bible says no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. That doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to tell them to share our faith, but ultimately it is the Holy Spirit that draws men, women, boys, and girls to himself. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify. And that's why I told you two or three weeks ago, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply to deny Christ unto death. The Holy Spirit speaks the truth to you about who Jesus is. If you reject it, if you refuse it, you're calling the Holy Spirit a liar. And if you don't repent of that before you die, you're going to go to hell. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's his number one job, is to tell people who Jesus is. And to draw people to Christ. To draw people to God. And if you call him a liar, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. So again, we have that age-old problem. You got people on one side. I said practicing substance abuse with the Holy Spirit because they look at him as a commodity, not as the third person of the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit. And they, and they misuse him misrepresent him all over the place. And then you got the other side where they don't even acknowledge the Holy Spirit. Their entire Christian experience is based upon intellectualism. Paul said knowledge puffs up. So people who pursue Christianity from an intellectual viewpoint exclusively become puffed up. They become prideful. They become arrogant. They think they know more than you do. And if you don't believe the way they, they do, then you're stupid. The intellectual aspect of Christianity. The higher critique and so forth. The balance is in between. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. And He is promised, Jesus promises He will guide you into all truth. So we desperately need the Holy Spirit. But He is not, you know, some Christian drug of choice to get high on, he's to lead us and guide us into all truth and to empower us to be a witness for Christ. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, tarry in Jerusalem until you'll receive power from on high to be my witnesses. Acts chapter 2, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yes, they speak in tongues, not so that they can get some kind of Holy Spirit buzz or high, but as a confirmation of the empowering of the Spirit and the releasing of the gifts of the Spirit so that they could be witnesses. And lo and behold, Peter leads 3,000 people to Christ that day. That's the goal. God didn't give the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be treated like cotton candy or cold stone creamery, soft ice cream. He gave it so that we could have power to be witnesses for Christ. He will not speak on his own authority. And again, the overemphasis on the Holy Spirit. He speaks by authority of the Father. Whatever he hears from the Father, from the Son. Again, for you and I, it may not make sense. We don't understand. I don't get it. One God, three persons, 
One's in submission to the other. And you know what? We will not understand it until we see them face to face. But if we are going to try and wait till we understand everything about God to believe in Him and obey Him, it's never going to happen. You mean to tell me you're going to be able to figure out everything and understand everything about the God who created this universe? And now they're telling us, well, it's not just one universe. It's actually multiple universes. They call it the multiverse. And seeing that God is infinite, isn't it possible that they just go on and on and on forever? Absolutely. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you of things to come. And he has. He gives us wisdom, he gives us insight, he gives us guidance and direction, and he has given us the entire New Testament, including the book of Revelation, so that we will not be caught off guard or surprised by those things that are to come. Verse 7, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. There it is again, the Trinity you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but there is the, the idea, the concept, the doctrine. The Father, the Word, big W, Jesus, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He is the Word, the Logos. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bear witness in heaven. Who are they witnessing to? The angelic hosts, the saints who have gone before us, as well as Satan and principalities, powers, and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6, 12. Remember in the book of Job, when Satan came before God to accuse Job. Satan is no longer allowed in the inner sanctum in heaven, but he does have limited access to God. And so these three bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit, before the angelic beings, before the saints who have gone before us, as well as Satan and his principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realms. What are they bearing witness to? The incarnation, the supernatural miraculous birth of the Son of God, the water, baptism, water, the sinless life and sacrifice of Christ, the blood on the cross of Calvary. And you've got to know that drives the devil nuts. He knows it's game over, but he's going to fight to the bitter end. Verse 8. There are three that bear witness on earth. So we have a heavenly witness. God has a heavenly witness up there, and he's got an earthly witness down here. What does that look like? The Spirit. Again, so the Spirit. Jesus ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. His presence here on earth is represented in the person of the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has also highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven. And if you're in heaven and you're bowing, you're in good shape, right? No problem there. The Bible says we're going to cast our crowns at his feet, right? If you're in heaven and you're bowing, no problem. It's all good. Then you have those on the earth, which could be good, 
Although if it happens after the rapture and the tribulation, not so good. A little late. And those under the earth, even the dead. Did you know that even the, the wicked, the unrighteous, the unsaved will be resurrected? Did you know that? Does that freak you out? I've been telling you for years and years, all this zombie stuff is prophetic. I'm serious. It is prophetic. Because the devil, in his impishness, he likes to flaunt his stuff right in front of us. And he works through unsaved people. Movie producers, screenwriters, television producers, book, every medium possible. He reveals his plan and his scheme because he knows most of the people are blind, deaf, dumb, and blind. They're deceived. And they're just going to think it's all for entertainment's sake. He is revealing exactly what he's going to do. And I will guarantee you, and you'll be watching from the balcony, I trust, but when the tribulation comes and you're watching from the balcony with your heavenly popcorn, boy, that should be really good. I love popcorn, don't you? Can you imagine what heavenly popcorn is going to be like? Oh, man. Remember manna in the Old Testament? Maybe it'll be, manna, you know, was supposed to be sweet. So possibly it'll be like kettle corn up there, you know. <laughs> but when you're watching, you're going to see all this stuff. You're going to see zombies. You're gonna, I'm, I'm serious. You're going to see people walking this earth looking just like zombies. Dead. Walk, the walking dead. The big show. I'm telling you, folks. It's prophecy. It's coming. I have no doubt. The name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, those under the earth. You see, that's what's really sad. One day, every knee shall bow, even those who have refused to bow in this life. They will have to bow before him in the afterlife but it'll be too late. They will be cast into outer darkness where they'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. If you're going to have to bow anyway, why not do it now and get all the benefits? Forgiveness, salvation, eternal life. Maybe that's something you could use with some of your friends or family members. Tell them, listen, and show them the verse. One day you will bow before him so why not just do it now and get it over with? This is the right time. Today is the day of salvation. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you imagine the agony, the pain for someone who is going to have to bow and acknowledge Him as Lord but then be cast away for eternity? People often wonder, what? What is hell really like? We read about the darkness. We read about the fire and so forth. I suspect it's all literal. That's how I take it. But can you imagine the inner torment of knowing that you had the opportunity. You could have lived forever with God in paradise, but you refused to bow before him. You refused to acknowledge him. You called his Holy Spirit a liar, and now you're in eternal torment because of that. You made the wrong choice. God didn't do it. If God is such a loving God, why does he send people to hell? Newsflash, he doesn't. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
Guess who sends people to hell? People. We send ourselves there by refusing to accept him. So we have these three earthly witnesses. In heaven, it's the Father, the Word, the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here on earth, it's the Spirit that Jesus promised to send us, the Spirit of truth, that inner witness. We have the water, which again could encompass all of the things that we've discussed. Certainly the public testimony of Jesus' purity and divinity. He was baptized, Matthew 3, beginning of verse 13. When Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him, John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he'd been baptized, Jesus came immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. So we have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Father speaks from heaven. Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit, the water, the three heavenly witnesses were all present at Jesus' baptism, as well as the earthly ones. The blood, the third witness here on earth, the blood, the power of the blood of Jesus to remove all sin, and that's what seals the deal, folks. The deal that Jesus truly is the Savior of the world. Luke 2.11, there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. John 1.29, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How? By shedding his blood on the cross of Calvary, the sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption. How? Through his blood. Not by good works, but through his blood. Redemption means to be bought back, to be purchased. We were sold into slavery, into sin, to death, and bondage to the devil. Jesus paid the price of redemption. He redeemed us. When I was a kid, our moms used to collect green stamps. Remember that? You get a full book, you go to the store, you get something for it. Go to the grocery store. Every time you buy groceries, they give you some green stamps. You fill the book. You redeem them. You give them something. They give you something. Christ paid the price with his blood. He redeemed us. He paid the Father on our behalf. We could never pay that price for our own sin. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. His unmerited favor. That means we didn't deserve it. I've shared this with you guys before, but the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize what a wretch I am. And again, that runs contrary to a lot of teaching today. There's a lot of teaching in the church today that's trying to pump you up. Tell you how wonderful you are. Build up your self-esteem. But as I read the writings of the great men and women of God... And I'm certainly not putting myself in that category by any means. But I find that down the line, they had the same experience. In fact, the Apostle Paul, towards the end of his life, said, I am the chief of all sinners. Spiritual maturity does not result in you having good self-esteem. It results in you being broken and humble before God and realizing how vile and wretched you really are. And without Him, you have no hope. 
So when I say my prayers at night, I thank him for all the blessings, and I tell him, and I know I don't deserve any of them, because I don't. That's just me. You can pray any way you like. But I pray to God, forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a vile, wretched sinner, and I don't deserve any of the blessings that you've given me. But thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy, and your forgiveness. Verse 9, I think we're going to make it. We don't have to fake it because we're going to make it. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. We're going to stop with the witness of men. If we receive the witness of men, if we accept men's testimony, and we do, this, is, this very letter is John's apostolic eyewitness testimony. I'm going to read back in verse, or chapter 1 again, 1 John 1, 1 through 3. He starts this book, this epistle of 1 John, by stating the following, that which was from the beginning, John 1, 1, in the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Big W, Jesus is the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. If we receive the witness of men, and we most certainly do, do we not? We receive the witness of John. We receive the witness of Paul. We receive the witness of Peter and all the other New Testament writers and witnesses. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. I love the way Paul keeps emphasizing, according to the Scriptures. That's our baseline. That's our foundation. That's our confirmation. Does it line up with the Word of God? That he was buried, he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 people at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, into the 60s. So over 30 years after the death of Christ, most of these 500 witnesses were still alive. But some have fallen asleep. They're with Jesus now. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time on the road to Damascus. If we receive the witness of men. Again, not everyone's testimony is totally reliable, but the witness of these men, the eyewitnesses who were there with him, the apostles, you can take their witness to the bank because their witness is inspired by the Spirit of God and they were there. So if we receive the witness of men, and I certainly hope we do, he says the witness of God is greater just based upon the testimony of men alone, however, Jesus' deity, his sinless, perfect life, 
and resurrection from the dead, in my opinion, is a slam dunk. But next week we'll talk about the witness of God. Let's stand up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, which, like so much of John's writing, is pretty deep. He really digs in. He's given us some meat here. The water, the blood, the three witnesses in heaven, the three witnesses on earth. Lord, I pray that we could take with us valuable things that we have learned today from this passage and utilize them in our everyday lives. That's your plan, that's your purpose, that's your intention. And Lord, even as we have our three heavenly witnesses, we have our three earthly witnesses, you've called us also to be witnesses. And Lord, so we ask that you'd help us to be honest, genuine, authentic in our witness. Lord, we know people are put off by fake, phony, religiosity, holier-than-thou attitudes, platitudes. We want to be genuine, truthful, authentic. We want to represent you as you should be represented. And Lord, you have called us to be witnesses here in this world. So we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. You said that you sent the Spirit of truth to us, to live inside of us, so that we would know the truth, walk in the truth, not be deceived. Lord, we ask you to just guard our hearts and minds against all the deception that's out there. In fact, even the insanity, Lord. Lord, living in this world today is kind of like living in an insane asylum. But Lord, we know you're able to protect us. We ask that you would put a hedge of protection around us. You guard our hearts and minds. That you would give us super sensitive radar, spiritual radar when it comes to the truth. That no man would deceive us. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, Take heed, lest no one deceive you. Help us to take heed. Help us to be careful, to stand firm, to stay in the truth of your word, not to deviate, not to vacillate, not to compromise. We know that we can express your love to others without compromising our beliefs, our values, biblical, godly, truthful values and beliefs. Give us strength in these last days. And Lord, we want to have an impact. Lord, we don't want to just uh, hunker down in the bunker and hide out till you come for us. We want to be effective for you. We want to win people to Christ or at least not have their blood on our hands. That we would be faithful to tell them about you and then they have to make their own choice, their own decision. So God, as we prepare to depart, as we sing our final song, as we, some will come for prayer now. We ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in these final moments that we might leave here filled with faith, filled with hope, filled with strength, walking in the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.